Hi, and welcome to Shut Up and Listen with Shelly Novak. And I believe this is episode 11. I can't believe I've done 11 episodes. And I came all the way from Miami Beach to the West Coast to visit a friend of mine who uh, has a lot of the same taste in film. And uh, we uh, have a lot of, a lot of, I guess we're a lot alike in many ways. We, we got a lot of people in common. But yeah, we got a lot of people in common. Uh, he's kind of like the heterosexual version of me. I would think. All right. I would I say that. I would say that. Um, he is um, well-known curmudgeon about town. That's not going to happen. No, no, it's not. You're not a curmudgeon. I'm a warm-hearted man. You are a warm-hearted man. Listen, anyone who let me into this beautiful Hollywood home. Fudge. I'm telling you, you listen, for all I know, you know, you don't, you're good. Anyways, let me introduce screenwriter Matthew Wilder. Welcome, welcome. Welcome, and now that we're now that we're not at my studio, I can't say welcome to the ugly couch. Welcome to the glamorous oh, Hollywood couch. This is a fucking ugly couch. No, this is. We a, need a new couch in here, but that. But, this is a know, glamorous Hollywood. Yeah, well, you don't know how God it is. God bless you for lying to your listeners. Well, Thank no, you. they will. My listeners were they're in Miami, so they're used to rooms to go furniture. So this is. <laughs> let me tell you, this we're in a posh Hollywood home. Oh my god. <clears throat> Where did you grow up, Matthew? Though I grew up in a. Truly, mm-hmm. in a trailer park in Des Plaines, Illinois. If you've ever been through Chicago, you've been to O'Hare Airport, right? Okay. You know O'Hare? Yeah. So if you look outside O'Hare and you see a bleak landscape outside there, that's Des Plaines. Wow. So I grew up in, in what was, I mean, truly, this was in the 70s, yeah. a gnarly uh, trailer park, sub the level of M&M in, in 8 Mile. I mean, really nasty. Wow. Uh, was your mother as beautiful as Kim Basinger? My mother was absolutely gorgeous. I'll, if, I'll, I'll attach a picture to this. Somewhere. Okay, sure. My mom and dad. My mom and dad. I saw a picture of them recently when I was like two. Yeah. They looked like Scarlett Johansson and Josh Brolin when they were little kids. Yeah. Uh, the looks missed me. I got my grandfather's looks on both sides, yeah. which is a, which is an unfortunate that's okay but when I have kids yeah. they're gonna look like Scarlett Johansson and Josh Brolin Thank, we can only one hope one generation will go down it'll skip it yeah, uh, yeah. but my dad was uh, was a truck driver he I, it was it was. I don't want to say a shotgun marriage but but yeah, yeah kind of yeah and but they made, they made it work they made it work for a minute and then he split Ooh. when I was seven yeah and it was kind of great because yeah we moved to my grandparents house which was nearby okay and it was like a house. Yeah. It was one of those. My grandfather fought World War II. It was one of those cookie cutter. You, you've seen like yeah, the, uh, the, 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 the GI Bill deal. The GI, GI Bill. Deal, it's yeah. one, of those, one of those cookie cutter yeah. houses that looks like uh, Levit- King of the Hill. Like Leviton. Yes. Yeah, nice. Just, just, but just, you know. Yeah. Very generic. It would be, it'd be a $4 million home in Los Angeles right now. Oh, it would be. Yeah. This guy was a, my, my grandfather, who was kind of a, a, a drunken tyrant, hmm. but he was a male, I mean, he was a mailman. Yeah. He was a reunion mailman. Yeah. But he had a nice house. Yeah. He had a Cadillac. Yeah. He had health care. He had all the shit that nowadays is like the American dream. To yeah. him, that was, you know, that yeah. was just like, you didn't even have to work for that. Yeah. So I grew up with them. I lived with my mom and my grandparents. My mom remarried a, a guy in 79. And we all somehow were under this one roof. It was a little too much, I yeah. think. Yeah. And um, so I lived there till I was 18. Uh, when I was 18, I went to Yale to study literature. 
Okay. And I was going to be. How did how do you teacher. how do you get from the middle of nowhere to Yale though? Did you get a scholarship? I or did. did you, yeah, you know, I did. I was I was I was like you know my the English department in my school you know pushed me and said this yeah. you know I mean the thing is if I had applied I think even a few minutes a couple of years three four years later than that I would never ever have gotten it. I mean yeah. like now I would never have gotten yeah. it. I didn't have scores. I didn't have anything like that. Yeah. Uh, you didn't. Have, you didn't have Felicity Huffman. To, I didn't have Felicity Huffman's yeah. bribery. I, mean, yeah. I, had, I just had a good essay. And yeah. the English people were like, "Oh, this guy's great. He's going. He's a. He's a writer. Blah yeah. blah blah blah." And which they, is you know, great. And, and, they, and so they let me in. So I went there in '85, which is, you know, I was talking to somebody about this last night. People don't want to send their kids to college anymore. They don't want them to, uh, you know, get student debt. And I, my, I don't know what, when you ever had this experience, but like my mind was blown. Yeah. I felt like such a hick when I went to this place because it was the most diverse, and I don't mean just like racially diverse, but like in terms of people from different countries, different mm-hmm. parts of America, rich people, poor people. I mean, it was such a cross section of people's humanity. taste in music, art, everything. everything. And I was sort of, in a way, I was kind of adopted by this girl. Uh, Beth Coleman from from Manhattan, who's very chic and very sophisticated and stuff, and I was, you know, I really was like a fucking country bumpkin. I didn't yeah. feel like I yeah. was till I got there, and yeah. I was like, "Holy shit, you yeah. guys eat raw fish with sticks? Yeah. Holy mo!" You know, <laughs> yeah. like, and they introduced me to all that shit, and and it was mind blowing. And I say that to people now because people are like, "Oh, you know, my kid, they don't want to get a hundred thousand dollars of debt," and I'm like, "It's worth it. It's worth it the to have your mind experience. blown." Because you don't, you don't know how your mind is going to be blown. You yeah. don't know where it's going to land. And I, you know, when I was there, I went from, I was going to be an academic, and mm-hmm. I got into theater. Yeah. Peter Sellers, the opera director, Peter Sellers, I met him there, and he became a mentor to me, mm-hmm. and I started doing theater. And, and it, just, it just completely blew my mind open. It was like I just went in different directions than I ever would have thought. Yeah. Um, so, you know, just my, briefly, my arc from there was... I went to theater grad school, and I did theater for a long time. I directed theater all over the country, um, mostly classic plays, but I directed all over the country. But at the same time, I had this love of film. I always wanted to do film. And who, I, who was taking you? Who was taking you to your film to see movies when you were a kid? When I was a little kid, my grandmother. Yeah, I went to see a lot of movies with my yeah. grandmother. So that, with that, my mom. that cultivated your love of film. Yeah, yeah. I, I, it, it did. And I, you know, I will never forget the first movie I saw by myself. Yeah, was Tess of the Dirt Roman Polanski's Tess of the Dirt. Oh my gosh! How great was it that the first time my parents let me go somewhere alone, it was with Roman Polanski? Yeah. I thought that was just yeah. beautiful. Well, as long as you didn't go into a hot tub at Jack Nicholson's house. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, you know and I, yeah, people always get mad when I say this, but you know what? For everything he's been through, I'm going to give him a pass. Roman? Yeah. Well, you know, we you know, know what he did. Th- th- uh, yeah, and you know. And, and he's been exiled. And, and know, he's, he's owned up to time. it. And I mean, he's you know. He's owned up to it. You know, it's just, it's not like he repeatedly, it's not like he put a fucking amusement park in his backyard. Now, when you say something like that, do people comment oh, well, afterwards yeah, and go, con- fuck you, you Oh, I'm considered extreme. I was just recently fired from a gig because my humor was considered too inappropriate. And they said they wanted to have a meeting about it. And I said, I'm going to save you guys the trouble of the meeting. I don't apologize for anything I say or any of my humor. All comedy is inappropriate because we hold a mirror up to society. And sometimes that mirror might be a little bit dusty, might need to be windexed, but yet, you know, we're making a point. So I said, I'm going to make it easy for you. I quit. So Then what did they say? They didn't say nothing. And then then I got off the phone ring and I got another gig 
immediately after the other thing. So when, when one filthy, broken, chipped door closes, a, a nasty, filthy, unwindexed, broken window opens in, oh. in Miami. Oh my God! So, what, 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 so here you are. You started with the acting. You, you did some directing, but then when did you start shifting? You always had a love of film. But when, yeah. when did, did you did you think you were going to write the, the great American novel? No, I never. I never really thought that. I, I, I mean, listen. I got into theater because uh, the guy who who mentored me when I was in college, Peter Sellers, had a, he had a really great idea, which is he said, "Listen, you know, you can you can write a movie." Yeah. And it'll take you five years or ten years or a hundred years to yeah. go around and get the money to make this movie. But he goes, you can make, you can, you can do the greatest play ever written today. You yeah. can get your friends yeah. and get six folding chairs and go stand in front of a garage somewhere and, and put on a show. And you can do it for zero dollars or ten dollars or a hundred dollars or whatever. But you can make something great for nothing. Yeah. And that blew my mind because I was like, wow, I can I can actually do shit right now. I don't have to like wait for wait, wait for and make a business plan and, and go yeah. through all this shit. I can just actually start doing shit yep. right now. Yep. And he had a great plan which was he and, and I'm you know, you've had this experience too. He said do a different play every 2 weeks. Yep. Just get your friends, throw it together, have them memorize it as fast as they can, even if you have to cut it down to 40 yep. minutes, just knock them out, knock them out, knock them out. And that's the best fucking... I, I recommend that to anybody. I recommend it to actors, to anyone. It's like to just keep making shit. Different kinds of things all the time. It's so, it makes you grow so much, yeah. that stuff. Uh, so that's what I did. So I started doing that. I went to school. I started getting jobs in theater. Yep. But I wrote some stuff. Yeah. And then the first gig that I got in L.A., was with um, Clyde Barker. You know Clyde Barker. Of course, Clyde Barker. We, we have mentioned uh, in another podcast, we were talking about the gay influence in horror and how he, is, he had shaped, you know, the, 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 the genre of body horror and all that S&M tinge stuff. I and mean, he's, he's, he's wonderful. He's you should a, do him. He's how, a how long are you going to be here for? I'm here till late Monday night. Well, let me... I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll email, because you should do that. I mean, if you do it on the phone. I you should do it with him. Yeah. I mean, he's... Clive is like a mind, his mind is, he's one of the biggest brains that I've ever met. I mean, yeah. he knows everything. He knows everything about painting. He knows everything about history. He knows yeah. everything about everything. Yeah. Um, I, have, I have a couple of friends that are like that. Uh, their husband and wife team, the Harrises, Allegra and Jared. And they're just, between the both of them, they're just, they're just, they're just wonderful. They know everything about everything. I love, I love that. I love yeah. that. I just, it's, 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 and it's so nice to talk about something, have people know what you're talking about. But, you know. I, I met with him. You know, he has these houses. He has houses next door to each other. One is like a workspace. Yeah. And one is, is his home. And I think there's a, even, there may be even another one that's an yeah. office. And they're, I mean, they're spectacular. Yeah. Way up in the hills, full of his, you know, he has a million paintings everywhere. And I went and met with him. And he had this thing that he wanted to adopt that was a, a play that he wrote called History of the Devil, which is, I, at, you know, people should look this up because it's awesome. Uh, the devil comes back to earth and basically makes a wager where he says, if you can prove that I ever harmed humanity, yeah. I will leave and never talk to another human being again. I'll leave you people forever. But if, uh, if, if you fail and you can't prove that I ever harmed humanity... You have to give me the keys to my father's kingdom in heaven, and I get to be the new CEO. 
So they have this giant OJ-style trial in the desert in Africa, so he yeah. won't be assassinated. Yeah. And it's this huge thing, you know, with, with like jumbo Sony jumbotron screens and yeah. stuff. And the planet Earth basically, you know, gathers its prosecutors against the devil to make the case against him. And you see five episodes of his life from, from like prehistory through the Holocaust. Yeah. And... And it's 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 like a it's a it's a courtroom drama. It's a yeah. courtroom drama with Satan, and it's it's fucking fantastic. It's fantastic. Wow. It was the greatest thing to work, as a, as a first job. Yeah. It was the coolest thing to work on, uh, and he is just a, a fucking superhero yeah. mind. And it, and he's a genius. I mean, he's and a and, and, the, and what what he has done is has influenced so much else. Oh, yeah. I mean, so much so much you see now too. Yeah, Amazing. I mean, I think that whole, all of uh, what's this uh, Ryan Murphy American Horror Story, all oh, come, that, the whole aesthetic of that comes from. He's wonderful. I love his work, but you can you definitely see homages to a lot of things in him, and I love looking for that because I feel like it's like he's, he'll sneak something into a Ryan Murphy production, and I'll say, "Oh yes, he's referencing Catherine Deneuve and The Hunger." Right. You know, and people don't realize it, but it's like you know, it's just, right. I just, I just got little odd things. He like does. people forget how kinky Hellraiser was. Yes, and how much oh, that's it was, about. And so ahead of its time. Yeah, there was nothing like that then. Uh, yeah, being the the S and M imagery is like, I mean, just crazy. Between him and him and the other one was uh, Stuart Gordon and Brian Yunza. Oh yeah, some interesting stuff. Society and Reanimator. Yeah. Oh my yeah, gosh. Yeah, yeah. So you so you got so you you're, you're directing the, the plays, but you yeah. always had a love of film. So yeah. then you said maybe I should write a screenplay while I'm here. Yeah, I had written a screenplay when I was in drama school, and then that I got me a manager and blah blah blah. So it was yeah. just kind of like a slow, a slow movement. And I worked for Clive. We we developed a TV series for HBO that actually was really cool. I'd love to dig this up again. He had this idea of. Do it was kind of an anti Forrest Gump in a way. It was like a, a an alternate history of America where yeah. he discovered that th- through all of American history, from Valley Forge to the Civil War, blah blah blah, through the present, there were these zombies, vampires, werewolves. Oh, that would sell now. People who were, who who were part of all yeah. like there was this tangled underbelly of history through every event. You saw this sort of uh, occult yeah. thing happening, which was fu- which was fucking awesome. It, the people who ran HBO at the time, it was re- it was literally it was people forget this time, mm-hmm. but it was that moment when HBO was transitioning out of Tales from the Crypt, yep. shit like that, into Sopranos and yep. Prestige TV. Yep. And the people that we dealt with, you know, that we would go into meetings, they would kind of look at Clive and be like, "Oh my god, this is some fucking." Schmuck from the comic book world, yeah, yeah. like they weren't taking him seriously. We're now doing yet, highbrow, yet, yet after True you know. Blood, I'm sure they were looking for another. So that would have been a perfect pro- uh, production for That's them. That's right, but it was just that moment where they were they were trying to be highbrow. So yeah. I think they didn't quite give him yeah. the love he deserved. But it was a great idea, great yeah. idea. Well, there's so many people that are talented that I don't think they, they get the love they deserve. I, I mean, one comes to mind, David Cronenberg. People seem to pigeonhole him, and he's another one that I think because, and, and, and even David Lynch, in a way, they, they, the, you know, the average person really don't appreciate or get it. Or I hear Cronenberg's going to do TV now, well, which would be kind of awesome. That's, that's the place to go be right now. If I they, think if so. They, it's, they, some of the budgets are great, and they, they got people who kind of run, away, run and do what they want to do. Have you seen Nick Reffin's? 
too old to die young? No, but I, I know about it. I have it. I just literally, as a homosexual, my required viewing was Now Apocalypse, the Greg Araki thing. Our is in there. Which one? Our Nicola Liberté, who plays Joan in our movie, is in that. Are you kidding me? Remember the girl at the end, the blowjob that gets thrown, girl who gets thrown out of the car into the ditch? Yeah, that's her. That's her. Oh my God. So season two was going to be all about her, and now yeah. they nixed it. Yeah. There's no oh, there's not going to be a second season? Oh no. my God. That's... Did you dig season one? I loved it. I, I'm a huge fan. I'm a, I love I'm a huge fan of the, the star. Uh, Avon Joga, I'm probably saying is ripping, murdering his name, but he always used to come in with the entire cast uh, now and then. When I worked at Kitchen 24 on Kawanga back in 2011, it was right next to Nickelodeon, so they'd all come in and eat their french fries and read their scripts or whatever. And, Is that when he was a little and, kid? Yeah, and he was flipping his beautiful hair, and he was always reading a big, thick book. And I came up to him, and I was waiting on him, and I was like, so uh, you're either uh, a writer or you're, you're, you're like pirates. And he laughed and I said, no. and he goes, no, I play Beck on Victorious at Nickelodeon down the street. <laughs> so me, I felt like a pedophile. I went and looked, I watched Nickelodeon a few times just to see, but they were all so adorable. We had to keep uh, the donuts behind a glass case specifically because Ariana Grande liked to lick them. Come on. You know she likes to lick the no, donuts. I know that, but... Yeah, put them behind a glass case. Wait, was she a Nickelodeon? She fight? was on, yeah, she was, please. she was on a couple of shows on Nickelodeon. But yeah, we had to put the donuts in a glass case. You know what I just discovered? About no, I'm her? kidding. The glass, the donuts Come were on. always in a glass case. No, but was she a Nickelodeon person? Yep. Yeah, she was on Victorious. Do you know she's 100% Italian on both sides? I thought she was Spanish. I did too. Wow. I well, good for up. her. She's a paisan. Good she's for her. She's kind of working it in both directions. Good for her. God bless her. She's gorgeous. She is. So, I'm going to ask a funny question. Okay. And I think, I, I hope you, I, you remember when I asked you before, maybe you have a little list in your head. Do you have five favorite films? Oh, I have 500. 500 favorite films. We could, we could just throw I, darts at the wall and yeah. Dude, absolutely. I would be like, here, okay, they, they, they'd all be Val Luton movies and I'd be done. <laughs> is, that, is that your top of your list? Yeah, he's one of my favorites. I love Val Luton um, just, it was, just because it was kind of like poetic horror set in the modern, like sad, almost, almost like a film noir, wartime on wee sadness. I mean, it was just it was just seeped in his films, and and they gave him nothing to do the movies. I mean, the staircase from the magnificent Amberson was in three of his productions. Is that right? Yeah, it was Arena's apartment building and the Cat People. It was Kim Hunter's girls' school and the Seventh Victim, and I think it was in um, Curse of the Cat People too. Well, he was the king of that, you know, in the bad and the beautiful, you know. Yeah. Like, you know, making something out of shadows yeah, and yeah. nothing. And, and empty it's rooms and much stuff. scarier. The, the, the mind can, it's much scarier what the brain can think of than what you can actually, actually see. When you see the monster, sometimes it's a letdown, like Night of the, Night of the Demon. They forced, oh, yeah. oh, they, forced they forced him to put the, well, it was kind of, a, I thought for the, its time was kind of a cool creature. It seemed very like a medieval etching type monster. But it was forced on him in the in the in the last. In the when last, you see too much of it, it's yeah, not good. yeah. You see too much of it. They warned. They said we need to see that demon at the end. So, uh, so what would be one of your first like? I'll well, all right. Well, let's like, just say. I mean, the one that to me keeps always coming up, and I that you watch. I'm over pretty. And over I'm again. pretty sure that you dig this movie too. And if you look at my bedroom in a minute, I've got a little museum to it in there. Is Robert Altman's Three Women? Oh my God, that's one of my favorites too. It's my. F- and I'll tell you why, I mean, like, look, there's a million great films. There's 
a thousand you could pick for number one. But to me, it really, and I know because we were exactly the same age, almost to the day. Yep. Um, it really resonates with my childhood. Yep. That, I mean, it's a great, it's just a great movie, period. But it really resonates with my childhood. I grew up around women, mm-hmm. not, not so much men. Yep. My mother and my grandmother in particular. But it's about these two women mm-hmm. who are, who, the, the movie, for people who don't know it, Go watch it right now. I think yep. it's on. It's probably on the Criterion Channel right now. It's definitely on Criterion. It was on. It was on Netflix. Was on Netflix for the longest time. No, they took it off because oh, I did that. Yeah, because I always come home drunk and try to watch it. Oh, I love it. <laughs> uh, it's such a great film. But it's a movie. It's. I mean, here's the thing that I think is the greatness of that movie is it starts out as just a very very realistic slice of life about two girls. In L.A., although it seems kind of like Palm Springs, yeah, or desert, desert, like a janky kind of desert. Yeah, not janky, yeah. but just sort of remote desert town. Yeah, and these two girls work in a in a sauna where uh, a sort of a, a spa for therapy old for old people, like physical therapy for old people. Yes. You go into a pool and they mm-hmm. paddle you around and stuff like that. Work you and out. one is this Shelley Duvall is this is this great. She thinks she's like the coolest, most sexy, groovy chick in the world. Millie Lamoureux. Millie Lamoureux. Who's really, she really hasn't a clue. And she doesn't know that everybody around her is just like forehead slapping. But she thinks she's like the ultimate chic. You know, reading Cosmo. Reading Cosmo and making these little, uh, you know, Ritz Ritz cracker treats and stuff. And Sissy Spacek plays... This little girl, Pinky, who just is like in awe of her, and wow, this girl really knows how to be a woman, and you know, and she's always being awkward and her fucking style, up. Her style, her yellow, her style. She's dresses. got the yellow dress, and she, you know, she gets it caught in the in the in the door of her car every scene, every single time, every scene. And we don't want to give too much of this away, but something happens at the midway point of this movie where one person gets literally like bonked on the head. And everything changes, and their whole personas change, and they kind of trade places. And Sissy Spacek, who you're used to seeing as like Carrie, like a mm-hmm. little, you know, Mousy. like a little fetus, mm-hmm. turns into this spitfire, you know, badass. She's out with the cowboys drinking beer and shooting bottles, and like, you know, and totally dominates the Shelley Duvall character. And things keep changing and keep twisting and turning. There's this incredible image of. They live in this uh, very L.A., like, kind of square-shaped apartment building, and there's a pool in the middle with these characters that, that a third woman paints on the bottom. Janice Rule. Janice Rule. Amazing. Who paints these monstrous uh, sea monsters mm. who are, like, rapists. You see them with these yeah. big dicks, and they're grasping Strange at Strange nipples. Yeah. yeah. yeah and it's, very... it's one of the most, honestly, like, one of the most horror. When you people talk about horror, I, I think, think like... I think there's still somewhere out there, actually, the paintings. You know what it is? They, they turn this place into... Uh, there is a, a fucking, like, condo complex on top of that building the Amazing. three women building so somewhere this is so creepy it's like yeah. poltergeist yeah. under the ground yeah. that fucking pool with those paintings is yeah. sitting underground somewhere which so just fucking creeps me out but that image if if you know just people google google three women painting because it's one of the most disturbing images especially when you see it at night lit up in the yeah. in the you know with like nighttime lights oh i, it's like I honestly think that's things. my favorite robert altman film oh, for i sure. love nashville um, I'm a fan of um, all his films, but that truly, 
and for me, the, the thing that my, my film education was in 1979 when HBO first came out, oh, yeah. it was a box on top of the TV, mm-hmm. and my mother and father put a lock on it so that I couldn't watch R-rated films. Sure. Now, here, I, I'm at the age, of course, where I'm, I'm going to fucking jerk off on a Saturday night when they go out to dinner because I'm going to find me an R-rated film. Right. You know? So here, I break the lock, but I'm watching films like Blue Collar, Taxi Driver, um... You know what I mean? Uh, 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 you know, three women, films that weren't necessarily films until until finally they started playing the Beastmaster and Summer Lovers. Mark Singer. Yeah, Mark Singer and P- and Peter Gallagher's eyebrows. That was it. Can I just say this? When in the days of the TV box, I don't know if there's people listening. But that was my film education. Yeah, me too. They went. They they needed the pay they, TV box they, before they, cable. They needed. They needed uh, content. And they literally, I mean, you, you're watching stuff and you're, it's, it's just things a kid shouldn't be seeing at my age, but it was, I got a great film education. The Duelists. Oh. I mean, you know. I, I had parents that they were very liberal. They would let me see pretty much whatever, but there were two movies. And, and I love these movies now because they were yeah. forbidden fruit. There were two movies they said, all right, we're going to draw a line here. Okay. You can't watch this. Cruising. Okay. For yeah. obvious reasons. Yeah, obvious reasons, sure. And Pretty Baby. Well, Which is a yeah. really good movie. And you actually. know what? Both movies. I took the butter knife, broke the lock, <laughs> broke the, and I watched both of them on the HBO yeah. box. Oh yeah, Louis Malle's uh, Pretty Baby. Was, Which today, was, if you was, made that movie, every it, person it, made who made that movie would be lined up and shot. Yeah, in you the could, face. it would never happen. You could never you do could, it today. Yeah, everything is. I so mean, cool. it was kind of hotsy totsy back then, but now it, very like, much you'd be, so. You'd, be, you'd just be killed. Very much so. Because the theme of the film was uh, the turn of the century. It was a New Orleans bordello and Keith Carradine. Uh, was a photographer. Was a photographer who fell in love with a, a twelve-year-old, uh, or maybe even ten years old. Like she was very, very Brooke. young. Brooke Shields, and paid the madam for to buy her virginity, if I'm not mistaken, in the film. Yeah, I don't. I, you know, honestly, I they would auction they off the virginity sex, of the. But he ideal, idolizes her, and he mm-hmm. photographs her, and everything. And she's yeah. there's like a they have a party at the brothel where they bring her in a room on a, yeah. on a you know like on a platter, and I mean it's like oh my god, today people's their heads would explode. Yeah, heads would explode. Uh, but I mean, but you know, she never kind of got fell out of that tra- trap because next thing you know, Randall Kleiser of Blue Summer Lagoon. Lovers puts her in the Blue Lagoon. So I mean, you know, it just was you know times were times were different. And cruising, cruising was uh, frowned upon because at the time the gay community felt like you know you're going you're going to incite violence against us, and you know which is in, in a, you know a valid point. But now, thirty years later, maybe I guess. Maybe even more than that. I look back at it and I think, and I watch it again, and I think this is an amazing serial killer horror film, mm-hmm. right up there with Manhunter, uh, and uh, and I think it's good. Al Pacino gives a, a, an amazing performance. Have you seen it in recent years with an audience? Not with an audience. I recently rewatched it again at home. It was on. It was on tape, uh, one of the streaming streaming things. It's weird to me because you know we're obviously in like such a hypersensitive time, but I've seen it a few times in recent years and. Millennials seem like they don't have any problem with the movie. Like yeah. they just dig it. Yeah. I think because it's so exotic. Yeah. I think that world, this immediately pre-AIDS world, like is so exotic to yeah. them. It's like such a, a lost yeah. horizon yeah. that uh, they're just into that. But I can understand Friedkin's fascination with the weather scene being frightening because even as a homosexual man, I can truly say that because it's not my scene, I, I find the deep leather scene just as frightening. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, that right there, just like um, the, what he did with The Exorcist, c- 
Catholicism, the guilt, you find stuff that makes people uneasy. And as soon as people are uneasy, the doors open for the the horror to come right in. That's right. So I just think cruising was very underrated at the time. Karen Allen was fantastic. She's great at the end, putting on the leather coat. Yeah, she's wonderful, whatever she did. Do you you remember the guy guy with the cowboy hat and the jockstrap? That was... Who comes in and knocks out... Al Pacino and the... He went on to big thing, something big. That was like his first movie. I remember. Really? Yeah, I think they... he He was a big... He went on to be somebody. Well, I just heard... Freakin' told a story that when they... That the cops that he dealt with in New York... Yeah. When they had a guy that they were questioning, they would bring in this this black dude who was about 6'6". Yeah. And he would walk in the room with a cowboy hat and a jock strap. I'm thinking of a different character. And nothing else on. And he comes in and... Punches yeah. the guy and knocks him on the floor and then leaves. Yeah. And he said the cops actually really did this because if the guy complained and went before a judge, yeah. he'd say, Judge, these guys had a guy come in and he fucking knocked me out and he slapped, smacked me off the chair. Yeah. And the judge would go, Well, what did this guy look like? Well, he was a six foot six black man and he had a cowboy hat and a jock strap and nothing else on. And the judge would be like, Get the fuck out of here. And that, you know, well, that was funny. that. And just. Yeah. Wiped it out. But they really did that. Yeah, well, it was a completely different era, and that movie was quite a time capsule of, yeah. of pre-AIDS New York. And uh, I think Friedkin doesn't get a lot of, uh, you know, it's tough when you're first out of the bat, you know, that one-two punch of the French Connection and The Exorcist. That's right. And you look at Sorcerer. Great. And it's just people, you know, it doesn't get the respect that, that it should get because it, it, it's... Audiences today, too, I mean, they, they don't rem- remember that uh, there was no CGI. Everything he did that was like the, the, the rope bridges and trucks going oh, over yeah. rope bridges was all, was all, all practical. Real. All real, yep. Crazy. 100%. Was there another film that comes there's to mind? So, so, I, I totally agree on the three women movie. There's so many. I mean, what I'm just thinking of right now, I've, there's, there's so many different genres and stuff, but you know, one movie that I've, I've been talking to people about a lot lately that I think is really underrated that was just an obsession to me when I was a teen yeah. is Prince's Under the Cherry Moon, you know, which was hated by everyone. Well, because they wanted another Purple Rain, and they didn't get it. But it's this beautiful black and white set in the French Riviera. It's yeah. like a 30s movie. Yeah. It's almost like a 30s musical, yeah. Kristen Scott Thomas. It, it was, it was Never More Lovely. I think Never, it was her first film. So charming and shot by Michael Ballhouse, who shot all of Fassbender and mm-hmm. Scorsese's movies. Gorgeous movie, hilarious, beautiful. Yeah. I had, you know, I don't know if you have you have these experiences where something's really tied to a moment in your life. Oh, but this very was, much so. This, this was the summer I came back from my first year of college, and I was back in Chicago, and I had to work a job in a mailroom, mm-hmm. and I was literally just like a monkey. I, it was a, a I, I worked at a stamp, a machine that stamped envelopes. Yeah, I don't think they even have shit like this anymore. Yeah, those, those, but you yeah. had to stand there and just. Literally move your left hand and wave it like this and, and feed shit into a into a funnel all day long. Oh it was like Charlie Chaplin. Yeah. You know, you're just a you're just a mechanical cog in the object. machine. Sure. And you know, eight, nine hours a day of doing that. Yeah. After you go to college and the ideas and people and sex and yeah. you know, wow, the world's yeah. exploding. And now you're, doing, now you're yeah, just yeah. a monkey in a basement yeah. going like this. So I plunged into the blackest depression ever of my life. I mean like I can't even I can't even focus on it now because it was just so painful and I didn't really understand why it was the way it was but it was obvious it was like because I was a fucking monkey in a basement yeah but my my oldest friend and I he also was in Chicago too at that time uh 
at the end of the day of these horrible work days, we'd get out yeah. and we would go to the Woods Theater, which is a grindhouse in Chicago, and go see Prince and Under the Cherry Moon. And that was like the fucking balm of my life. Like for, just took for, you out of your... for two hours, yeah. you could just laugh and just like be in this world of all these beautiful people on the beach on and the, you yeah, know the Riviera in the Riviera and this great Prince score. And, but and think of and then, Prince's power at the time too to be able to to. I think they must have said after Purple Rain, just make whatever you do want, do whatever you want. And and he did. And inevitably, when they do that to uh, directors or artists, inevitably, whenever they say do what, do what you want. They always get pissed off at the product. You, you told me mm-hmm. to do what I want. Now that I've done it, you don't want it, or you don't right. like it, or you're gonna, you know, make me tack on a demon at the end instead of a steam locomotion, a steam train, or do you know what I mean? Right. I, this, I remember the soundtrack made more money than the movie. Oh, for sure. Sadly, because people, you know, it's just it the, was the, what it was. It didn't have the MTV jump cuts. It wasn't really for the MTV generation. It was it was from a, it was a product of a different time in a sense, the way right. he did it. I think you're right. You know, I've never really thought about that, but I think you're right. It was. You know, that, it was out of time. Yeah. yeah. And the song that I'll never forget for him, it was Sometimes It Snows in April. Sometimes It Snows in April. Yeah, man. Christopher Tracy's Parade. It's yep. Good. It's just it's a great album. Great it's a great movie. Fucking soundtrack. I don't know why there was so much hate. Yeah. Because people, you know, and and it's only gotten worse. People want what they want. I love, love horror, um, horror films, and I love uh, superhero films. But you know, after a while, it can be just you know, I, too much. It's like I I, I I was saying how the Blumhouse people owe their owe their success to Val Luton. I was trying to argue with my friend Jay because I had to explain to him what the Luton bus was. You know, a jump scare. When they throw a cat in a frame or there's a loud noise to the left and it makes you jump in those movies, which is when it's PG-13, they have to make you jump without a knife or whatever, right. or blood or gore, they use a loot and bus. And in Cat People, when Alice, the protagonist, the, the girl that's uh, ch- cheating with uh, the husband of Simone Simon's character, the cat woman, she's being pursued through Central Park you know, to, through the, the, the bright light of the, uh, the lamppost, through the dark, the bright of the lamppost, the dark, the, you hear the, the heels clicking, the heels clicking, she keeps looking to the left, looking to the left, looking to the left, and you're all looking to the left, and all of a sudden, a bus pulls up, and the hydraulic doors go hiss. Oh, wow. And the trees shake, and, he, and the, the bus driver's like, what's, you coming on, lady? And she's like, did you see that? Did you see? So picture, you're, it's 1942, that's never been done before. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's been done ever since. I know. So much so that they throw cats into the frame. Oh, yeah. Now we have but, fucking jump scares. But jump scares. Uh, the, 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 the term for a jump scare is the, the Luton bus. Wow. Really? Is, yeah. The little film The Luton bus. I the like Luton it. The bus. And I attach that to, I'm going to, everything, everything that we talk about, I'm going to attach links to all the films. Yeah, links. In the, in the, um, in the uh, podcast um, description, because we're going to have links to the trailers for each of the films. Watch the links, about. people, and we'll go watch the movies, too. Yeah, really. fucking de- good. Definitely should. I have to say, right off the top of my head, I mentioned Val Luton films. I was a big fan of the Hammer films. It's always been horror. But the one movie that always makes me cry like a baby whenever I watch it is Cinema Paradiso. I've never I'm seen such it. a sucker for the film. I've never seen it. Oh, it's... Well, it's, now i got to watch It's yeah. about a projectionist, right? Yeah, so the projectionist okay. who, who befriends this little kid, and he becomes like a surrogate father, and the kid grows up to be a, um, a, a famous director, and 
But he tells them, you know, you go, go to film school, never come back, don't ever be nostalgic, don't come back to this town. And he does at one point, and, and uh, he, he finds, um, you know, the censors made them cut all the kisses and anything, anything romantic, the Catholic Church, out of all the films that they showed in his childhood. And I'm not going to give away the film. Go watch Cinema Paradiso and be prepared to cry. I'm going to watch that tonight. So that was one of my favorites. Um, I'll probably later on tonight go to home to bed and think about 400 more that I didn't talk about that I should have. Because I, I love so many crazy films. Of course, I love all the John Waters films. I'm a big, I think out of all my favorite John Waters, it might be Polyester. I love polyester. Yeah. I love Desperate Living. Desperate Living. Because I think you know the thing I think is interesting about that. I feel like he should go into this direction more. I don't know if you've Fairy seen test. Desperate Living lately. Well, it's like a horror movie almost. It's it's still technically a comedy, sort of, but it's the least comedy of all his movies. Yeah, and the most horrifying. Well, I, if I thought of it more of as a gruesome Grimm's Grimm's fairy Very tale. Very much so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, like... Uh, Mortville, yeah. everything's Mort- backwards, yeah, yeah. you have yeah. to walk backwards. Oh, well, yeah. when she puts the babysitter's head in the microwave, or you're going to put my baby in the oven, or whatever the fuck she says. <laughs> yeah, if John Waters wanted to do a horror film, he definitely could, but I also think that he, he, he says the next project, if he ever does do something, he wants to do an animated Christmas to thing called, yeah, like called kid, Fruitcake. Fruitcake, a kid's movie, right? A kid's movie, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it's That's like a, cool. And, and it'll be the most punk thing that he could do, really, uh, is, is to do something like that. I love him. There's nothing that he can't do that I don't love. Can I throw one more title please, in here? Please do, please do. Gold Diggers of 1933. Yeah, Busby Berkeley. There's a little Busby Berkeley in there. This movie was like a mind blower to me when I was a kid because when, when I was growing up, I saw on TV all the 50s musicals, which I don't really dig. The Elephantine, South MGM, Pacific, Oklahoma, yeah, like those kind yeah. of G-rated, corny, over yeah. long. Sailors dancing through New York. It, I mean that one's all right. Heterosexual dancers dancing through New York, not the ones, that, not the that, ones in, on not the the ones in cruising. On the town is okay. Yeah. But what I learned later was there was this whole period of musical making in the early sound days that was much more came from a tradition of burlesque and vaudeville and was much more salty. Yeah. And kind of oh, and yeah. the movies were just cheaper yeah. and they were kind of dirtier. Pre code, right? Yeah, I mean some of those are pre code and they're short, yeah. and you know the book scenes are really snappy and kind of, and they have sexy people in them, and they're kind of fun. And Gold Diggers of Thirty Three is great; people should see it. It's just all around; it's a backstage musical, and it's good. But it ends with this incredible thing, which Mervyn Leroy, the director, fought to get into this movie, which is this number that's just my, we can link to this because there's a million of them on YouTube. This number, for remember my forgotten man. Which is where, very relevant till very today. Very relevant today, where this hooker standing on a street is talking about her forgotten man who's a veteran who fought in the Great War and came home to be homeless and yep. broke. And it's which sounds bleak, but it's like a it's like a march. The yep. song is like a mar- like a forward march. And it's just it's just exhilarating. Yep. And when you see it in the movie, it's rousing. like you can't it's rousing. You can't believe that this shit is in a movie, and there, you see this drunken. Ho- it starts with this drunken hobo standing like propped up on a on a lamppost, and there's this little pantomime where a cop comes up and pokes the guy with his nightstick, like, "Hey, move it along, buddy." And this streetwalker comes up and unpeels the drunk guy's jacket pocket and opens it, and you see 
a chest full of medals sitting there. I just and she shows the yeah, cop. The shot is Look amazing. who this guy is, yeah. you know? He's, it's, uh, he's, the, he's the forgotten soldier, the he's forgotten, forgotten man. man. And that was a big issue back then. They, but people were going to the, see these films in the Depression to, to just escape for a couple of hours, but then they saw themselves on the screen in that respect. But was mm -hmm. this the one with Ruby Keeler that opened with the shot that she uh, follows her straight through the backstage and then the camera's going between women's legs and everything else, shots that you don't know how they got these shots? Or was that Buzzby Berkeley? I think Ber that's 42nd Street. Oh, like I'm thinking of Buzzby Berkeley. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm getting my but this movie is But is I definitely awesome. remember My Forgotten Man because that, that how powerful that was and how, and how, and yeah, I could see how he would have to fight for that. Yeah. Because they wanted escapism. But that period of stuff is so it's it's so good now, and people are very fascinated by all the pre-code stuff because yeah. movies were able to be a little more adult yep. than than, oh, and yeah. then suddenly they weren't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there was so much freedom there. Yeah, Stanwick and uh, Babyface. Baby, I just saw Babyface. Yeah, and three it's on so a match. Good. Three it's on another a match. One of my favorites. Jumping out the window. Cocaine. Uh, the little baby's eating uh, cantaloupe rinds because there's no food. <laughs> She's right. like, she's a beautiful kid, the kid, the, the kids starve, and she's like, go eat, go eat the chartoucherie, whatever's left in the fucking cocaine plate, baby, the, it's crazy. Oh, yeah. And those movies were all between 66 and 73 yeah. minutes long, which is yeah. just like a And there was a lot of length. nudity, there was a lot of homosexuality and lesbianism, yeah. but then they just, the, the code just stopped it, because... And a lot of flappers drinking giant... You know, ice cream bowl martinis. Yeah. But, you know, that that was a huge thing. They hated seeing uh, drinking oh, on screen. Yep, yep. That was bad. Smoking. Or women, women, women Smoking. flappers. They're just, you know, having a good time. Yep. Busby Berkeley got away with a ton of uh, silhouetted nudity and a lot of... A lot of uh, sure. So, but they, 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 the church, I think it was the church, wasn't it? That they cracked down or... The Catholics, the Catholics yeah. Hayes, the, you know, the Hayes Code. That yeah, was they were, a Catholic-driven were all, Yeah, they were a lot of fun. They were a blast. <laughs> and still fun. Yeah. Oh, my God. So I want to talk a little bit about your career, too, because mm -hmm. I am curious. You have done a few projects that have, uh, you know, of course, I IMDB. What does that sound like mm -hmm. a sex thing? I IMDB'd you. Mm -hmm. IMDB? Is that what it is? IMDB. IMDB'd you. Right. And... And I know about because it, it, it went to Khan, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. If I'm not saying, am I even saying it right? Is it Can or Khan? Can is it Can? I say Can. Really? I'm from Boston. It's Can. You can. You can. Don't be sarcastic. You can do it. Oh, yeah, wise guy. So, but you, it went to Khan. Your film Joan of Arc. I, no, that one didn't. Dog, doggy, dog. Oh, dog, went to okay, can. doggy, dog did. But I still, I want to talk about Joan of Arc. Then first of all, okay. Just reading the synopsis. Mm -hmm of an alt-right Christian woman mm -hmm. who finds herself hearing voices from God that tell her to attack federal buildings. Yeah. How did you, how did you, this, how did you think about this to put that analogy together? And I mean, you must have been walking on eggshells, an uphill battle. What was that like? To well, it's very strange. This movie came about because a few years ago, I saw uh, in, in town here at the Arrow, Brisson's Trial of Joan of Arc. And the movie is taken from the transcripts of Joan's trial, and it's a very simple telling of the judges questioning Joan. Yeah. Joan responds, and eventually they burn her at the stake. And the movie is like 70 minutes long. And it's so powerful. And I saw this movie, and afterwards I was just destroyed. 
And it was an audience of all kids. Everybody there was like about 20 years old for some reason. That's, a, that's I, what I love about LA, though. I all do the love students. That. There's all the students. I'm so glad that they're, 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 they're interested in it, you know? Well, I looked around and I was like, oh, shit, these kids, I'm going to walk out and these kids are going to be like, oh, fuck this movie. Well, I walked out and everybody was just destroyed. Yeah. They were destroyed. All yeah. these little kids. Some of them didn't, had never seen this story before in any way, and they were, it just blew their minds. So I thought, oh, there's something to this. So a, a playwright friend and I, t- we took the, the transcripts of Joan and created a contemporary script out of it. And the first draft that we had of it was set in a world where it was like, and this was you know in the Obama era, so it was set in a world where in the future, like Timothy McVeigh style mm-hmm. domestic terrorists and ISIS had, a, had like a corporate merger. So it was sort of like partly... Islamic terrorists, but also partly like hometown terrorists. Yeah. Uh, people hated that. Oh my God. They just fucking, yeah. they hated that. Yeah. But we had, it was, we were going to do it with a woman that I worked with before, Taryn Manning. Do you know Taryn Manning? Of course, she's, she's wonderful. Orange is the New Black. She, I, I believe then you worked, you did work with her. Uh, she was in that movie I did called Your Name Here. Yeah. If people we'll know her, about, she's, we'll talk about that she's awesome. She plays Pensatucky on yep. Orange is the New Black and yep. she was in Hustle and Flow. And she's she's great. great. So we were going to do this with her and then we, we got the money to do this in 2017 and I realized, you know, where we are now, and, and this is the truth, if you read Joan's words, mm-hmm. she sounds, if you just make her an American, yeah. she sounds like a member of the Trump administration. Yeah. She's about making the country Christian again, making it great again, yeah. expelling the foreigners, get stop the foreigners from running our lives. God's talking to me. Get them out, God's talking to me, all that stuff. There was the, the, the thing that was cool in the script was we didn't have to change anything to, except for n- place names mm-hmm. to make it 2019, and almost nothing Crazy. has changed. It's just that she's literally saying those things. Yeah. Sounds like Steve Bannon when she talks. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so we were going to do it with Taryn, and she had to leave to go to uh, do Orange is the New Black at the time that we were doing this movie. Yeah. So I had just met I had seen this girl, Nicole LaLiberté. I was staying at, uh, at Schrader, Paul Schrader's house, and he wanted to watch Twin Peaks. And I said, oh, I want to I watch, I want to rewatch the old Twin Peaks first. Yeah, and he said, no, 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 I got to watch this. We got to watch the new Peaks. So we're sitting in his house watching, tw- watching Twin Peaks. He falls asleep on the couch, and I'm, I'm still watching. And this girl, Nicole LaLiberté, appears. She plays this femme fatale who eventually gets murdered by Kyle MacLachlan in the movie. Yeah. And I was like... I sort of smack him like, oh my God, who is this? Who is this chick? This she, is incredible. She, her look is... is yeah, but is, everything about her, she's just... It's like it's like seeing Deneuve in Belle de Jour or something. I mean, she's just hypnotic. Yeah. Like, oh my God. I was like, is this somebody huge? Like, should we know who this is? I thought... I know this sounds crazy. I thought of like a, a young Rose... Uh, uh, Mia Farrow. Uh, I mean, she has yeah. this strange ethereal... Ethereal is the word people use about her. Uh... So I was like, wow, this is incredible. This chick's incredible. Yeah. So while watching, I'm texting, like Facebooking yeah. her yeah. and going, oh my God, I'm watching you on this thing. You're amazing, blah, 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 blah. So come back to LA, met with her and just said, hey, you're great. Like, yeah. You're awesome. Let's do something. I don't know what, but you're amazing. So, you know, whatever. And you don't, don't give that too much thought because, you know, people say that stuff every All day. All the time, yeah. But then Taryn pulled out of Joan 
and we had six, dig this, this is a real ultimate testament to Nicole. Yeah. We had six days before we started shooting the movie. And Nicole had a 4th of July pool party <laughs> on the day we found out we had no Taryn Manning. Yeah. So I went over there, and as she's like, you know, splashing in the pool, I was like, yeah. hey, can I ask you a question? Would you like to play Joan of Arc? And she's kind of like, what? You know? Right? Let me, uh, Let me towel <laughs> off. Let me towel <laughs> off. Let's go. Get me the script. And, and I got to tell you, she crammed. I mean, like, talk about cramming for something. Six motherfucking days. Yeah. She's in every shot, every scene, every line practically pages in the movie. Of, pages of dialogue. Pages of, and, and breaking down, having a nervous breakdown, losing your faith, gaining your faith back again, being put to death. All this shit, six days. Crying sometimes for 12 Crying hours. Crying and dying and, you know, I mean, like being tortured, being, she gets waterboarded in this movie. Yeah. It's, it's a, you know, it's a tour de force for her. And she somehow did this in six days and didn't miss a beat, didn't, didn't fudge a thing in the course of this movie. The Trial of Joan of Arc. It, yeah, the movie's called Regarding the Case of Joan of Regarding Arc. Regarding the Case of Joan Regarding of the Case of Joan of Arc. It's going to be in streaming land soon. So um, hopefully we can put the trailer on there yeah. and people oh, can no, see I'm that. Oh, no, I'm going to definitely put the trailer and, uh, in the link. Now, my question is when, when it did come out, was it a little bit of a darling? I remember it made a it made a wave. Didn't it make waves uh, with the critics and at some some festivals? We've we've had a lot of of really good critical support for this movie. There's a lot of great um, great critics who've who've written about it and talked it up. David Edelstein at uh, New York Magazine and and a, a lot of other great folks. So when this gets out there. It's. I mean, you know how obviously how hard it is now because the yeah. landscape is so full of a million. There's a there's million things. So much going on. I feel like I, I, I. Even though we're living in a land of over communicate over over information, I still feel like I'm not getting learning or getting enough or reading enough or seeing oh, enough. Yeah. Don't you feel like I just feel that like just TV alone? People tell me like, oh, you gotta watch, you gotta watch, you gotta when? watch, you gotta watch. I'm like, when? how can I watch it all? I know there's fucking 24 hours in a day. When I know, I know, I know. You and know? There's so much good stuff. And there out is there. so much good stuff. And I find myself reading more because I, I'm yeah, overwhelmed by the visual. I agree. I agree. It's crazy. So on the subject of Paul Schrader, yes. I'm gonna tell another butter knife butter, um, knife. butter knife HBO box story. Sure. It's, it's 1979. Now I did this, I turned this into a monologue at the moth, and I did it in, I've done it all over Miami Beach. Um, I talk about how um, when I got involved, and I, I'm, I'll fucking tell the story here, too, I might as well. Um, how I got involved through a boyfriend of mine who was a gay porn star who said, we need, in, the, in a straight porno, we need someone to play the angry dad who comes home and catches the brother and stepsister fucking. It's $1,000, will you come and play the angry dad? $1,000. So I say... Do you have to fuck them also? No, I'm, I'm, complete, I'm an extra. You're just, I'm, I'm an angry dad. You're exposition. I'm exposition. I'm the guy you... How dare you kids do that? You've ruined Christmas, you whores. <laughs> I, they were like, so anyways, I, um, I come and I do it, and I explain to the guy, I'm like, I don't want to sit through it, wait through the sex. I say, let's film my scenes first. So I came in like a director. Okay, we'll film my scenes first and everything and, and get in and out. Well, you have to interrupt some fucking, though. Oh, no, at, I get them at the end of them fucking, but uh, I can, that, that scene you can fake by putting fake ejaculate on the girl. 
which I thought was like oh, maybe toaster it. strudel icing or something that she would enjoy, but it was a, a hand soap. Anyways, we're getting off uh, off topic. But I remember... Is this like on the small of her back? Where oh, on the face, it? the whole night. Oh, on the face. Okay. Everywhere. The whole night's ridiculous. So they fake it all so I can go home early. But I say to myself, I'm going to come in and I'm going to be the angry dad, but how am I going to play this? You know how I'm going to play this? I'm going to do George C. Scott in hardcore. God damn it! Turn it off! <laughs> Turn it off! You little fuckers! You ever see a stag film? So anyways, <laughs> I, in 1979, I broke the butter knife because I said to myself, oh my God, the movie this Saturday when my parents go to dinner is hardcore. Uh, it's got, I'm going to see tits and dicks. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to watch this dirty movie. So I watch it and it was just so, it's such a great film. I know he's not that happy with it, that, you know, but as a kid, I remember just being so moved by it all and that, that underbelly and season Hubley's performance. She's fucking brilliant she was great as priscilla presley in the uh the, the the that elvis miniseries she's a wonderful actress if you're out there go watch hardcore so anyways he comes to the miami film festival for first uh, reformed and i wait i'm the last person to thank him at the at the film festival and i come up and i tell him this story um how like i tried to jerk off at 12 years old to your film but instead became a film lover and a film student and uh and an actor and a comedian and i tell this story in a monologue and then i actually ended up playing the angry dad in 20 different movies and they used to call me one take tommy and they said how how, do you, how how do you how do you channel all this rage i tell them it's a combination of my mother's three divorces and paul schrader's hardcore and george c scott but oh, yeah. not well, anyways just like hollywood they found another angry dad the phone stopped ringing but you I, worked I, I could, with Paul Schrader. Yeah. And he, he was like, for that fucking story that I told him, he was extremely polite to me. Shook my hand and was really nice. Because I, I don't think he knew what else to say. Because that story is just, you know, what do you say to someone? Good job, you know? <laughs> but you worked with Paul Schrader. Yeah. And let me tell you, that must have been like, I mean, I feel like that to me, if I was a screenwriter, kind of nirvana. Because this is mm -hmm. someone who it, it started as a screenwriter. Mm-hmm directs, screenwrites, does it all, and mm -hmm. he's really kind of shaped the landscape mm -hmm. of the last 30 years of film. Sure. Not very respected as he should be, in my opinion. I feel, I feel he should get a lot more respect than getting he does. Getting there. I, yeah, getting there. Um, I feel he was robbed of the Oscar. Agreed. Um, but tell me a little bit about, well, did you get the call or did you? I got, I got a call. I was, you know, this was a movie that. Doggy uh, dog. Doggy dog. That a guy had come to me who had produced my first movie called Yearning Here. And he came to me and said, hey, you know about this book called Doggy Dog uh, by Eddie Bunker. And if people, if there's anybody listening to this that's into 70s movies, you probably know Eddie Bunker because he wrote, his autobiography became the movie Straight Time with Dustin Hoffman. It's about a guy who's a a crook who can't go straight. He gets, out of, he gets out of jail and he can't deal with straight life in the free world. He has to keep going back to jail because he, can't, he, can't, hang, he yeah. can't hang with the straight people. Was Deborah uh, Raffin in that? Teresa Russell. Russell. Oh, Jesus, Teresa Russell. Because that was another one of my Bud and I film, film from fucking HBO movies. Teresa Russell, who's, who's perfect. Harry Dean Stanton plays his best friend who's like the safe cracker guy, you know, the, the, yeah. the, the, the lieutenant. But uh, Eddie Bunker was this guy who spent his first God knows how many decades in and out of jail and um, then became, he started writing novels. He started writing crime novels. 
And one day, Eddie Bunker was he was in like Chino or what, what or, you know one of the big California prisons, and um, he had sent through some family friend he had sent one of his books to William Styron, who wrote Sophie's Choice. Yep. And whatever sent the book, and one day a guard came to his cell and literally opened the you know turned the key in the lock, opened yep. the door, and left the door hanging open. And Eddie Bunker said, "What's this?" And he, "What's up?" And the guy goes, you're free to go. And he got up, and it turned out that William Styron had written a letter to the the warden and said, I'll vouch for this guy. He's a great writer. He's done his time. As you can see, he spends his time writing. You know, I think it's time for a pass. So he got out, started uh, adapting his books into movies, and just kept going on and on until he died. His best buddy in jail was Danny Trejo, who people know. Yeah, I'm sure his machete. Yep. Uh, and he's now big tacos. Da- taco and donut entrepreneur God in bless L.A. Him, man. He yeah. is. He's awesome. Yeah. And, and and Eddie Bunker got him a job as like a like a stunt guy, fight coordinator sort yeah. of guy on movies. And then of course, because Danny Trejo is like 11 feet tall and mm. has this incredible look, started getting cast as an actor in yeah. movies and, yeah. and acting in movies. So anyway, Eddie Bunker is that guy, and he wrote a lot of books. This is one of his books, and uh, I said, "This is great. Yeah, let's do it." So we got we got the book, we uh, I, I adapted the book, and it was it was for me to direct. Now one of the producers of this movie suddenly uh, at one point like just magically disappeared, and uh, and I said, "What's what's up with this? Yeah, you know, like where did this guy go? Money with them. Where did he go?" Uh, so there was a long silence of about six months. And then yeah. at the end of this silence, I got a phone call as I was walking down the street one day. Mm-hmm. And it's this guy going, Wilder, this is Paul Schrader. I'm directing your movie, Doggy Dog. <laughs> and I was like, well, one, sad that I'm not doing it. Yeah. But two, if I'm not doing it, yeah. glad you're the one who's doing it. Right? So from that point on, I have to say, that, I mean, the thing that was really great about it was he kept the script Absolutely, as it was. I mean, they, he 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 didn't fuck with it, and he yeah. did not let the producers fuck with it. Yeah. It remained exactly as it was. Um, it was. It, it eventually got got shot in Ohio, yeah. so we changed LA stuff to Ohio. But he really kept it as it was. Now, the thing that was really interesting about this was, here I was. I wrote this script, and in my intention was that this movie would be a real gritty, dark, urban seventies crime cop movie and I think Schrader got that and he, and he felt like you know fuck this I invented the 70s I don't need to go yeah. there again and do that Yeah. so I was in uh, New York on New Year's Eve one uh, one year and he, he called me up and said okay I want you to take the movie's all cut together I want you to take a look and I said oh great came into this little editing bay with a little monitor about as smaller than that TV and he goes all right, Wilder, you're in for a really big surprise. <laughs> and he shows the movie, and I have to say, if anybody has seen the movie, it's on Netflix, you can take a look at it. Yep. The tone of the movie is a very playful, surreal, kind of Godard-like, uh, pl- kind of a playful approach to violence. So, And there's even a scene where the guys stand in a hotel room and they're spraying each other with ketchup bottles and spraying the walls with mustard ketchup and stuff. So you get the feeling that the blood spraying in the movie is no more real than these ketchup bottles are. Yeah. So there's a feeling of unreality to it in the movie that's very stylized and very playful. And now if you read the script, 
I think you'll get probably a pretty, you know, like a, something more in the tone of like Jackie Brown, like more of a gritty, low rent crime drama. Yeah. He did this thing that's much more stylized, much more wacky. But the thing is, he didn't alter the script at all. He really didn't change the scenes or, you know, fuck with the dialogue or anything like that. It's just the tone of the movie is much more wacky. Yeah. Than than what was written, but it's great. Do you do you think that had a little to do? I mean, Nick Cage did, was Nick Cage because of his wha- his brand of wacky and his style of acting. Did I, I think I did think that a bit. led to it because even Willem Dafoe was it Willem Dafoe? Yes, yeah, Dafoe. But both of them kind of have that wacky kind of. I think Cage felt honestly. Kilter. I think he felt this this need to keep up because you know Schrader had originally offered him the part that Defoe plays, Mad Dog, who is yeah. a mad dog. He's yeah. a screwball. He's the loose cannon. Yeah. And Cage wanted to play the, the, the leading man guy, the guy who wears a suit. Yeah. And is like the guy that tells her, all right, fellas, here's what we're going to do. We're going to rob this bank and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. That guy, this, this straight edge guy. I think when we started rehearsing it, he noticed that Defoe was kind of stealing all the focus. Not because he was stealing focus, but yeah. because the character's just a screwball and does a lot of funny shit and you know, kills people for nothing, and, yeah. you know, he's that guy. So they switched it up. So I think Cage felt he had to kind of create something more yeah. to kind of pull pull the energy back to him a little bit. Yeah. So I think that's why we, you see him in that movie, and I think he's, you know, he's kind of wacky and kind of over the top. Uh, I mean, like that thing, there's a thing at the end, we won't give it away, but yeah, he morphs, he kind, of, he kind of morphs into a different character at the end. Yeah. Uh, in the last inning, yeah. and and that was not, that was never in the script. That was yeah. never, that was that it's was no some, one's idea. That was just kind of like Nicholas Rogue's performance or something. Yeah, it is. It's right. No, I never thought of that, but it is. Yeah. Yeah. Wild, wilder. Yeah. <laughs> it's not just wild. It's wilder. Now I kept thinking um, the Philip K. Dick uh, project uh, was something that hadn't been done yet. But no, it has it, been. It has, it's already been done. It's been done. It's it's a movie with. Uh, I can, I can I'll, I'll send it to you what the, what the name of it is it's your name here your it's name here Bill Pullman okay plays Philip K. Dick who's a wonderfully overrated actor he's so wonderful but I'm, Under. I'm, what, I'm an underrated <laughs> Freud I'm, sorry Freudian slip oh my god you know what I he's meant he's a horribly overrated I mean he's terribly underrated what I mean yes. is exactly you, that's what I meant yes trust no, he me, is Mr. underrated Pullman trust he's me he's great very underrated he gives you would love him in this movie he gives a very Buster Keaton like performance and the notion of the movie is it's as if Philip K. Dick woke up one day yes. and realized he was in a Philip K. Dick novel. Now, if people know, people know Philip K. Dick wrote Total Recall and Blade Runner and other classic Do sci-fi. Do Android's Dream of Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep. And they're all movies about big cosmic paranoid conspiracies where, where there's kind of weird, you know, weird Alex Jones shit going on in the yeah. universe. Yeah. And in our movie... Phil Dick's real life was a mess. He had six ex-wives. He had the IRS chasing him all the time. He lived in a garage with a bunch of um, bikers that were cooking meth all the time. He was just a hot mess every which way. Yeah. His whole life was a disaster. So the point of the movie is he wakes up one day and all this mess in his life he discovers is actually part of a conspiracy from God to you know put the whammy on him and make yeah. him a vessel and... You know, and it all has meaning somehow. Suddenly he realizes, oh, this isn't just, I'm just fucked up, but there's actually a cosmic purpose to everything that's going on around me. 
So it's it's him and Taryn Manning, and uh, so you finally did get to work with her in a sense. I did. That's I did. Great. She's she's magnificent. She plays Victoria Principal, which is the actress Victoria Principal. A thinly veiled, thinly was veiled. Victoria Principal involved with Philip. Victoria Principal was involved with Philip K. Dick in the sense that Phil Dick would smoke so much speed, oh, he would write like 150 long love letters to Victoria Principal and also Linda Carter. Well, he had a type then, didn't he? He had a type, Jeez. a very certain brunette type. Brunette type, for sure. Wow. But I think he had restraining orders from both. I can only imagine. Because he would write these like well, copious, yeah. you know, and, and, and he would start them and they'd be like, well, why didn't you call me today? Yeah. I thought you were going to call me yeah, on I'm Tuesday. Just, I'm just sitting around smoking speed and writing, writing classic <laughs> sci-fi. There's nothing creepy at all going on here. Yeah. Wow. I bet Bill Pullman, now see, Bill Pullman, that is, a, that is an example of him being underrated because, I mean... That kind of role is like, I mean, that's a challenge. That's like, that's... You, you, it's, it's epic. Epic. It's epic. It's crazy. Now, he won the only award he has yet won for acting for that movie. What, that is one of, my, my, one of my proudest moments. No, it was, it was, it was at a festival. They, it was a festival that didn't give out acting prizes, but yeah. they voted a special jury prize for Pullman. That's so great. That was fucking rad. That's yeah. great. That's... Now, I'll just real quick. Yeah. People who should have won Oscars, whether they were nominated or not, people, performances that should have won Oscars that, that you think that they should have, but they didn't. Performances? Not that the Oscars, the, the end of the end and be all of everything, but there's so many times where I've said, like, I'm, I, I feel that Montgomery Clift, eight nominations, never won. Sure. Glenn Close, seven or eight nominations, never won. Well, Thel- Thelma Ritter, Thelma Ritter, always great. I, I mean, in recent times, I would say for sure, uh, Isabelle Huppert for Elle. Yeah. Which is one of those things where it's like the movie, I think, didn't do that great in the U.S., so yep. it didn't have the momentum to do yep. that. But, you know, Isabelle Huppert deserves like five Oscars. Yep. The other person I feel like is that way is um, Judy Davis. Yeah. Judy Davis and Woody's movies to me as great as fucking anybody ever. And it's sad because, you know, it's kind of like she had that... that that uh, my brilliant career. Mm-hmm. She had all these great performances early in her career, and uh, you know she was the it girl for a while, and then you know things moved. She, she did what I thought was probably the best Judy Garland bio biopic. Yeah. It was a television film. That's right. But she killed it. Killed it. Killed it. She's one of those people. I feel like she was. Ju- you know. You know how there just are certain people. I feel like they're just they're kind of at the wrong time. Like. Yep. She was, Judy Davis kind of came of age in the 90s, and she has a very theatrical, I think yeah. kind of like Betty Davis sort yeah, of She should have been working for Michael Curtis in from Michael Curtis. In the 90s were a time for yeah. Julianne Moore to be doing Safe and Boogie Nights and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And yep. Judy Davis was, yeah, when it yep. could be in a George Cukor movie. Yep. And she just was kind of not in the right, you know, Woody, I think, worked well for her because he writes, I think, kind of theatrical dialogue yep. and stuff. Well, his like, movies like, are like plays. Yeah, well, like Blue, Blue Jasmine was almost, in a sense, man, it was so funny because my mother, uh, 70s, in her 70s, when we went and saw her, she left, she goes, you know, that was Streetcar Named Desire. Yeah, it was. Did you know that, Tommy? It's Street that. Perceptive, Ma. I was like, Ma, you're right, you're right, Ma. She goes, yeah, Andrew Dice Clay was like Stanley Kowalski. That's right. So my That's mother's right. my mother's pretty funny. Peter Sarsgaard's Mitch. Yeah, and my mother, but my mother though she's great. Though we saw Mummy Dearest years ago, and she said, you know, those kids were spoiled. 
They were ungrateful. <laughs> and oh. wire hangers destroy good clothes. She never, she, my mother's not abusive, but let me tell you, you really? know, the house was clean. She likes her Bon Ami. Yeah, well, no, but she was never abusive, but she, straight up, I knew, I knew when to say please and thank you, and I was a polite kid, and I knew, I knew what all the good things I got. I was, I was very grateful for the, yeah. I would never hang anything on a wire hanger, and as an adult, there's, they'll never find one in my house. Is that true? Yeah. You I, got all wood hangers. Yeah, and you know the ones I hate the most, not just wire hangers? Those plastic ones from Target. That people buy in bulk, they look. I always think of like, you know, when you when you're throwing out a male stripper, everything they own is on one of those fucking plastic hangers, and it, and, and, and every possession they have fits. Everything they own fits in comfortably into one IKEA bag. So I keep IKEA bags handy, and I'm always it's my. All right, can, can you explain to me what does the wood do that the metal doesn't? The wood uh, holds the shape of the costume the as a drag queen. It holds the shapes, the shoulder pads. It holds the shape of the clothes. It doesn't tear. Uh, it doesn't pull on the clothes. It doesn't uh, rust and leave uh, uh, from the humidity any rust stains on the clothes the way a wire hanger would. But I also think a lot of it has to do with the fact that when Joan was a child, uh, they lived behind a dry cleaners, and as a child, she was forced to uh, take all the old wire hangers and, uh, like, you know, just clean up while her mother was turning tricks. It was not an easy child. Oh. So the whole dry, dry, that's the dry, living in the back of a dryer, dry cleaners, I think fucked her up in the head. Holy but I'm on her side. I'm sorry. I'm the same way. Holy mackerel. I just saw a picture of her and Barbara Stanwyck when they were both burlesque girls. They so were both beautiful. Like so fucking gorgeous. And they had different names. They were like... Yeah. What was her, what was her first... What was well, her you know, name? you know, a star was born, they say it was kind of based, in a sense, on Barbara Stanwyck and uh, her first husband, who was yeah. it, Ted Hale? That, that comedian guy. Yeah, yeah. Ted Hale, I think. Ted I, Hale, yeah. What was, what was your favorite version of a star is born? Oh, definitely. I just saw it again, uh, 54. Definitely. You've got it, Esther, and you've got it in spades. <laughs> I didn't realize that all that uh, "Born in a Trunk" and all that stuff was not was not yeah. George Cukor. That, that was, was that was else that's an example. That, that was an example. As much as as much as the uh, Grace Kelly really was good in a country girl, but it was not. I love her, but no, no, no that was no, no, was. No, no, no. I like I like when. Beautiful women play ugly. It's it's something we as a nation love to see. We need it. We need it. But Judy Garland was robbed of that Oscar. Yeah, and that it's was, that one scene, right? It's the one single what, take scene when she's when she's crying, cracking up in the dressing room, when, and the guy, the, the agent, but, comes to visit her, and she's the, <laughs> she's got the uh, yeah. freckles drawn on, and it's they start running. Oh yeah. God, she's just amazing. Okay, can we just say on that note, and yeah. this, this will make another good clip. Okay, the sequel to that scene that was ripped off from that scene, but I think in a way it's kind of even better. Yeah. Do you know Inside Daisy Clover? Um, I do know of it. Robert, uh, oh, it was during, Natalie Wood. Natalie Wood, Robert a Redford. Gay, impotent because he's gay and can't deal with it, Robert Redford. Oh, it was like a pseudo-Tennessee Williams uh, Very. of that era, right? Christopher Plummer is the sexual sadist. Yeah. Uh, but it's about Natalie Wood and her stage mom. Ruth Gordon. And there's this incredible scene where she's doing ADR, yeah. additional dialogue recording for a musical number where she also has the Judy, the freckles, yeah. and she's doing this little number about life in the circus. Yeah. And she goes into this booth. Oh, we got to just put this in I will, YouTube. I will, I promise. Natalie goes in, and, she's, and, and you can't hear her because she's in this glass, so you just see her, like, you know, lip-syncing, like, singing away. Ha, 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 ha
the screen, which is her singing on you know on the big screen in the in the sound recording booth. Yeah. And then finally, she just goes. Like she screamed. Starts screaming and pounding the glass and pounding and going nuts. And Christopher Plummer has to run in and grab her and drag her out of the thing. Oh, it's so awesome. Another another underrated her. actress who who should have got an Oscar. Oh la la. I mean, I feel. West Side Story oh. should have been her Oscar, but I mean, but how? I mean, but two women, Sophia Loren was very powerful. But what happened to George Maharis? He won an Oscar for that, right? Didn't he win Best Supporting Actor for West Side Story? No, I think it was the other one, uh, not George Maharis. He, he looks just like him. George Maharis is Russ probably, Tamblin. No, not Russ Tamblin. Oh Christ, I can't think of his name. He won the Oscar, and he and he got he never really worked again that much after that. Bernardo, the guy who played Bernardo. Why are we brain farting? Rita Moreno won Best Supporting Actress. Rita Moreno and... It was not no, you guy. know what she should have won the Oscar for? Splendor in the Grass. Oh, yeah. What a movie. What a movie. And Barbara Loden as, the, as uh, the Warren Beatty's sister. Her scenes were cut, but the one, the small scenes that she did have... Have you seen the deleted scenes? No, but I, I, I know that, I, 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 read, I read what they were. I mean, she had more scenes. You know, in The Swimmer, the brilliant swimmer, the whole scene right. with Jan, our, love, our lovely Janice Rule from Three Women, yep. that was added after the fact. Barbara Loden played that character oh. and was excised from the film. I know. What a life that I would poor love girl to, had. I would love to see the footage of her performance in that piece, but it's nice to know that... Um, through all the ups and downs being married to Kazan and whatnot, uh, that her film Wanda... Is now huge. Is finally getting the due. People are so into that a movie A Criterion uh, release. And, you know, a lot of people forget. I mean, that... Uh, I mean, one of If the people fir- don't know, Barbara Loden was married to Ilya Kazan and she was an actor. And he treated her not too awfully well. But the one, you know, one thing in her lifetime that she got that was supposedly great, I don't know if this is, maybe it's on tape at Lincoln Center, was the, the original Lincoln Center production of After the Fall, where she played thinly-veiled Marilyn Monroe. Mm-hmm. I think Apparently she, she, she was the Tony, incredible. Right? I don't know. But I just know everyone Not, says it was yeah, amazingly a great. Huge, no, I, I heard that too, that it was a, a huge success, and she got a lot of, and that's what gave her the uh, juice, I think, to be able to... Uh, do the swimmer, although she got cut, and then she, I think she just said, "No, I'm going to make my own film, Wanda." Right. So yeah, Wanda. I'm going to have to put a link which is to now Wanda. a huge beloved movie. Yeah, it only took thirty years, just like everything. So, do you have a proudest moment? Do I have a proudest moment? Um, Did, was there ever a moment where you felt like I kind of made it? I kind of, I kind of achieved what I want to achieve, or you still? Um, you know what, honestly, this sounds really dumb and sounds really corny, but uh, I, my proudest moments for me are, like, saving people who are on the brink. That's like, great. people I know who are, like, yeah. either going nuts or they're, like, going to jump out of a window yeah. or something well, yeah. I mean, and getting them to kind of, like, talking them step down back, ledge. talking them down from the ledge and, and actually getting them excited about their life again and making yeah. them feel like they can actually do something. That's really nice. That's that is, I'm not, I'm not trying to be nice. I no. really just, I mean, well, literally when, when I you talk ask to, the question. When I talk to other artists, they, they, like, they, what are your proudest moments? A lot of times they're like, well, when I finally got to do Shakespeare in the park, it's about that thing. Helping other people is great. 
Well, I mean, yeah. In that case, you know? just it's like like I don't feel particularly proud of like oh I I maybe you haven't done I, what you're, you're no your certainly thing, not you're not not your maybe you, no. you know you aren't there yet to what you what's going to be your pinnacle. No, but I just I just sort of feel like uh, you know this is going in a whole other direction. But but it's like I the older I get, I come to the feeling that I think people are a lot limited by sometimes you know how their parents treated them when they were a kid or yep. things that they're afraid of or something that... fucking go with the past, man. It does you no good. Yeah. Something that, that, that they did that they got really burned by or something yeah. and and their, their, their window of what they think is possible narrows a lot. And, and it's like I try to encourage people to open it up a lot because I just know... I know so many people I feel like they could be doing so much stuff but they're limited by their own They can't get out of their own vision. way. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have a most embarrassing moment? I have do a ton. I, do I have a most embarrassing moment? Um, God, like just a million embarrassments. Let me let me think. You you go first because yours um, is probably. Awesome. I was one time I um, fell onto a uh, glue rat trap and didn't realize it was stuck asymmetrically on the back of my wig, and performed wearing it, uh, not realizing it was there. Um, and people thought that it, I was wearing like a cool punk hat until they realized it was a rat glue trap. <laughs> so I walked around in my That's head. fucking I, awesome. I, I fell into it. I didn't realize I landed on it and I got home later on and realized it looked like, looks cool. It looked like a kind of like a Slaves of New York type <laughs> fucking, but it was Bernadette a, it, Peters. Yeah. Yeah. Bernadette Peters kooky hat, but it was a, <laughs> it was a glue rat trap that had been stuck to my wig for almost eight hours at GrooveJet in Miami back in the day. Oh my goodness. But, but yeah, I got I got nothing like that. Nothing like that. That's okay. So, what can we look forward to in the future? Are you working on anything am, or anything yeah, that whole, you can talk about? I'm doing a whole or? bunch of things. There's a bunch of things that I I have to wait till we launch them because otherwise the the producers will be mad that I that I preempted it. But I will yeah. tell you one thing that that I am doing. Yeah, don't in the jinx fall. anything. I won't I won't name the title of it, but it is a, a remake that I'm directing of a Roger Corman produced horror movie. That is set in Joshua Tree, okay. and it is a vampire story. It's a vampire love triangle. Okay. And the tone is kind of like The Hunger, Don't Look Now, uh, Schrader's vel- Comfort the, of Strangers. The Velvet Vampire? I can't say the name of the movie. Okay, I'll shut up. Um, but, you know, you're warm. I'm warm. I'll, I'll still uh, shut up. Yeah, yeah. But it's a, it's a, it's a triangle yeah. love story uh, erotic horror movie which and, I kind of feel and, uh, I kind of feel we. this is just one thing I just yeah. want to say is I think we need this now and something we, the producers and I were talking about yeah. a lot is there's not much even horror that we think is small, like this I like this guy Ari Aster who made Midsummer oh, and did Hereditary I think he's brilliant he's brilliant but there's still kind of teen movies I mean like yeah. Midsummer is sort of like maybe like post-college movie yeah but it's, it's, they're it's, not adults. He's, he's making movies for the hipster age. Hipster age. And Jordan Peele is doing some brilliant work. But I understand what you're saying. It's it's all these Luton bus scares and uh, The Conjuring 7 and Annabelle 27. Right. Annabelle comes home to... Annabelle goes to college. Annabelle goes Hawaiian. When I... When I oh, my God. I haven't even watched that one yet. The, the, when I think of Val Luton, I think of, you know, like like Simone Simone in, in, in Capybull. It was like a grown-up. You know, in Schrader's cap, people like, you know, Nastasha oh. Kinski, she's probably really young, that but was, seems like a woman. Yeah, no, but that was that was a product of the most brilliant casting. I thought he did well uh, bringing 
the story up into the eighties because that whole the fear, New Orleans. the fear of intimacy that of the original one during you know the forties and World War Two, the, the the displacement of uh, of refugees and everything else, her being mm-hmm. Serbian, all that, the the hint of maybe there's a lesbian aspect. Why won't she sleep with them mm. in the eighties one? Of course, you know, we had the shadow of AIDS and everything else. I think I think he did a great job. I think that movie is very underrated. That was another one I, I used the butter knife to watch. I think you should do a Val Luton series. Oh, I would love to. I would love you to. You should do that. You should show that to the people in Miami. Show and, those. I mean, there's not that many movies. Oh, Miami well, in movies. Miami, we really are blessed to have... Um, a gentleman by the name of Naib Estefan, and he loves film as much as I do, and he goes out of his way to get 35-millimeter prints, and he makes events of it, and he has such cachet and such a great following that he will show these films like this, and then there's another group of these young gay kids, they do flaming classics, and um, they uh, let me show, um, one time they had had me speak at a college, and I showed uh, I Married a Witch, and I fell out of the limo that they hired for me because I was nervous. I made the mistake of drinking in the limo, and I fell out of the limo with a bottle of uh, tequila. Like, uh, and uh, anyways, big hit at the college. I passed the bottle of tequila around the, the audience. Everyone took a swig. I told a bunch of stories about um, um, Veronica Lake. And then maybe I shouldn't have told, told the story about Alan Ladd uh, fucking a chicken. Maybe I went too far. But, um, is that true? Yeah, they, well, supposedly he used to hire uh, chorus girls to dance around him uh, nude and with, uh, with a chicken and sing this little song. You simply gotta fuck that chicken. It's, it's, it's rumors. It's, it's like the rumor. It's, like, it's, it's Hollywood legend like um, in Sunset Boulevard in the beginning of the film when uh, they think uh, that William Holden is the undertaker who's come to intern uh, Norma Desmond's dead chimpanzee pet. Now, the rumor is that supposedly rich women in Hollywood back in the day would uh, get um, chimpanzees and train them to perform cunnilingus. And supposedly, the big story is, and I don't know how true it is, I've only heard it on, on the Gilbert Gottfried podcast, which we love you, Gilbert, um, is that B- uh, Billy Wilder's direction to Gloria was, you have to act as if your lover has died. So, so I don't know about Chikungunyas if that's true or not. We, we gotta to, track this down. We, I mean, it seems like there would be easier ways to get your pussy eaten than. I to would train think because you know what the chimps get crazy later on in life. That's you right. You know what I mean? They'll, they'll, they, they, they might bite they get a little fa- handsy. They might bite your face off. So, all right, I look forward to your new project, and I want Thank everyone you. out there. I'm going to put the links. I want them to look for the regarding the case of Joan of Arc. Joan of Arc. Dog eat dog. The yes. film you did with Paul Schrader. Yes. And if anybody out there is into Bill Pullman, great performances, or science fiction, I would your say... Your name here. Your name here. I think that's the, those are the three, my big three. And um, we're also going to put links to Three Women, Cruising, the Val Luton films. I'll go through and make sure everything Prince. is covered. Prince Under the Gotta Cherry Moon. Prince in there, Under yeah. the Cherry Moon. But um, I just want to say to you, Matthew Wilder, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you on Shut You are a joy. Shut Up and Listen with Shelley Novak. We have had Matthew Wilder, screenwriter, Hollywood legend, good friend, good guy. And I love your home. And I, I thank you so much for inviting me here. God bless you. Thank you so much for being on the thank podcast, you. everybody. It, this has been screenwriter Matthew Wilder. Please go check out his amazing work. Thank you so much. Thank you.